Welcome to Music for Life, exploring the purpose and value of music to humanity's enrichment. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is soprano Kathleen Battle in her Carnegie recital album singing an aria from Johann Strauss Jr.'s opera Die Fledermaus. This aria is known as Adele's Laughing Song. And today on Music for Life, we will explore compositions intended to depict laughter, as well as other compositions intended to depict elements of humor. In our Sounds of Scripture segment, we will discuss the biblical record's mention of laughter being mixed with singing. And in our classroom corner, we're going to talk about the benefits of using humor in the music classroom. Today on Music for Life, Music for Laughter. Oh, <laughs> 
Sometimes we ambassadors for classical music get embroiled in a discussion of whether we should call this type of music classical music. As you are probably aware, there is an era of classical music that is called the classical era, and though we capitalize the C when referring to that time period of Haydn, Mozart, and early to mid-Beethoven versus the generic lowercase c classical when referring to all this high art music, it's not always evident on a radio show or podcast which word I'm saying. So sometimes we use the phrase fine art music, which I find acceptable. Another form I would accept is concert music, implying a bit more formal type of music. But a term that I am opposed to that sometimes gets thrown around when referring to classical music is serious music. The reason I am opposed to this moniker is because it's rarely serious. Sure, it can be serious, just as it can be sad or triumphant or any number of adjectives, but to shove this art form into one box that is labeled serious is a complete mistake, and hopefully today's episode will help counteract that term. Before we begin our discussion of standard music history and some elements of humor found in it, let's first have our Sounds of Scripture segment, where we survey the Bible's many references to music for a longer-sweeping historical perspective on our episode's theme. The idea of laughter being represented in musical compositions is not a new concept. Laughter is mentioned in the biblical record among the Psalms and other musical references. Psalm 126 speaks of Israelites being freed from captivity. Verse 1 says, When the Eternal turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them who dream. The psalm opens with this idea of euphoria so great it almost doesn't seem real. Notice how this joy is further described in verse 2. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the heathen, The Eternal has done great things for them. The joy described here is absolute giddiness, to the point of laughter mixed with singing. We find laughter even represented in certain vocal compositions of more recent history. One example I already played and one example I'll play later. So imagine the musical setting of this psalm to be not much different than those. Several other psalms mention laughing in the lyrics, which may have had the same musical flavor in the way the text was set in order to portray this idea. Psalm 80, verse 6, talks about Israel's enemies laughing among themselves, and Psalm 52, 6, talks about the righteous laughing at the wicked. By way of contrast, several verses show God laughing at the wicked. Psalm 37, verses 12 to 13 read, The wicked plots against the just and gnashes upon him with his teeth. The Lord shall laugh at him, for he sees that his day is coming. Psalm 59 verse 8 says, But you, O eternal, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the heathen in derision. And that is similar to Psalm 2 verse 4, which reads, He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. George Frederick Handel set this psalm verse in a short recitative in his famous work, Messiah. Here's a recording where the tenor, in Baroque fashion, adds an ornament on the word laugh to help paint the meaning of it. This is a recording of tenor John Ayler with the Toronto Symphony. He that dwelleth in heaven shall laugh them to scorn. The Lord shall have them in derision. Handel also set Psalm 22, verse 7, which talks about the people laughing at the Messiah. He also captured the spirit of laughing in the sense of a mocking laugh here in this tenor recitative. 
That was the same recording of tenor John Ayler performing Handel's Messiah, a recitative that captured the spirit of a mocking laugh in that movement. Another union of laughter and music in the biblical record, and one that is also associated with mocking, is found in Judges 16.25. There the Philistines say, Call for Samson that he may make us sport. They were going to make their prisoner dance, a Hebrew word that means to laugh, play, or mock. Dancing implies there was music, and this kind of sport was a mocking laughter at Samson's expense. This idea of music and laughter being associated with mocking is also found throughout the Old Testament. Job 17.6 reads, He has made me also a byword of the people, and aforetime I was as a tabre, that tambourine-like musical instrument. A byword here in the Hebrew means a song of derision. Job 30 verses 8 through 9 read, They were the children of fools, yea, children of base men. They were viler than the earth, and now I am their song, yea, I am their byword. Similarly, Lamentations 3.14 says, I was a derision to all my people and their song all the day. The Hebrew for derision can mean laughingstock or mocking. This is another biblical reference to laughter being associated with music. In all these accounts, in Job and Lamentations, the word for song is the same used for the phrase in Psalm 69.12, Song of the Drunkards. And that reminds me of a song set by Maurice Ravel, where he is intending to portray a man who says, I drink to joy, and you hear the laughter in this Song of the Drunkard. This has been Sounds of Scripture. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today we are exploring compositions intended to depict laughter or an element of humor in an episode I've titled Music for Laughter. That was Ravel's Song of Drinking that tied into a verse we read at the end of our Sounds of Scripture segment where laughter and singing are referenced together in a psalm as part of the Song of the Drunkards. You could hear the laughter-like quality in that recording. We were hearing baritone José Fandam with the BBC Symphony Orchestra conducted by Pierre Boulez. 
Let's go back to the Baroque era, though, and catch another great example of laughter being referenced and imitated in a particular composition. This is another vocal work, but not only is the tenor soloist and then the chorus imitating laughter, but you'll hear the laughter-like quality in the instrumental introduction. This is Haste the Nymph from George Friedrich Handel's L'Allegro, a choral orchestral work known as a pastoral ode. It is based on a poem of John Milton's, and we will hear a recording by the English Baroque soloists and Monteverdi Choir conducted by John Elliott Gardner. musical imitation of laughter in G.F. Handel's Haste the Nymph. From the pastoral ode titled L'Allegro, a choral orchestral work based on a poem of John Milton that reads in this movement, Haste the nymph and bring with thee jest and youthful jollity, sport that wrinkled care derides, and laughter holding both his sides. That was a recording by the English Baroque soloists and Monteverdi Choir, conducted by John Elliott Gardner. As we move into the classical era, capital C, I want to play an example that doesn't directly imitate laughter, but certainly is meant as a musical depiction of humor. Franz Josef Haydn was known for the jokes included in some of his works, some of which we've already discussed on this program. The most famous example would have to be the second movement of the Symphony No. 94 in G, nicknamed the Surprise Symphony, 
The joke has to do with the surprise. Some would argue the surprise was that most people expected second movements to be soft and soothing. After Haydn presents the delicately quiet opening phrase for this movement, he writes a sudden loud chord at the end of one of its phrases. The music then immediately returns to its original quiet dynamic as if nothing happened. Haydn's biographer asked the aging composer whether he wrote this surprise to awaken the audience. Haydn replied, No, but I was interested in surprising the public with something new and in making a brilliant debut. And a brilliant debut it was. One critic wrote that the symphony was simple, profound, and sublime. The Andante movement was particularly admired. And I do think, whether he intended it or not, it is quite surprising and humorous. Let's hear the Andante movement, the second movement of Haydn's surprise symphony. Here is the Camerata Romana, conducted by Alberto Lizio. Thank you. 
That was the Camerata Romana, conducted by Alberto Lizio in the second and surprising movement of Haydn's Symphony No. 94 in G. Haydn was trying to surprise the audience with something new, and one can't help but notice the humor in that second movement surprise. Usually we would hear a soft and soothing movement, but a few key placed fortissimo chords, and we have an amusing little musical joke. A musical term that you'll hear a lot that literally translates from the Italian word joke or jest is the word scherzo. If you've had any substantial contact with fine art music, you probably have heard that word used to describe many pieces of music. So what is the joke? Merriam-Webster defines the word scherzo as a lively, humorous piece of music that is played quickly. Similarly, the musical term scherzando can mean to play in a playful manner. Other definitions of this word show that it usually refers to the second or third movement of a sonata or symphony. We'll talk about how this became a standard part of the movement order of a sonata or symphony. The word shows up in musical compositions as early as the Baroque and even Renaissance eras, but where it really takes off is with Ludwig von Beethoven. Until Beethoven, the movement construct of a symphony was usually like this. The first movement was relatively quick, the second was slow, the third was a minuet, both in meter and in form. You could literally dance a minuet to it. And the fourth movement was quick and lively. Well, of Beethoven's nine symphonies, only the first one follows this format. In his second symphony, he changes the third movement from a menuet to a scherzo, again, Italian for joke. Now, if you recall from a previous episode, the minuet is a stately dance in a three-beat-per-bar stress pattern. One, two, three, one, two, three. A precursor to the waltz, basically. The scherzo as well is in a triple meter, but the meter is so quick that you wouldn't dare attempt a minuet to it. Usually the meter goes about like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. I think the joke here is somewhat of a mocking of the aristocratic lifestyle. Beethoven's time was that of moving away from the aristocratic privilege toward the power of the working middle class. The joke in replacing a minuet with such a racing triple meter movement was certainly a humorous idea, if you ask me. The third movement of his Seventh Symphony is particularly and ridiculously in a fast three-beat-per-bar pattern. You'll hear one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, as basically the tempo. Here is Carlos Kleiber conducting the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra.
You are listening to Music for Laughter on Music for Life. I'm Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. And today we are exploring compositions intended to depict laughter or an element of humor. That was Carlos Kleiber conducting the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra in the third movement of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. After his first symphony, Beethoven changed the third movement of his symphonies, which were conventionally minuet-metered at the time, to scherzo movements. Scherzo is from an Italian word meaning jest or joke. And the joke here was probably how quick the three-beat-per-bar pattern was. It certainly was nothing that the aristocracy could have danced to. Now, Beethoven did revert to a minuet third movement in his eighth symphony, but he simply titled that movement In the Tempo of a Minuet, which is a little less explicitly music for the noble court. In his ninth symphony, Beethoven continued in the scherzo movement trend. He even challenged the tradition a little more so by making the scherzo movement the second movement rather than the third. Remember, the minuet or scherzo movement was usually the third movement and followed the slow second movement. Here we have, in the second movement, a scherzo movement and then the slow movement as the third movement. And then the finale, the famous choral finale, Ode to Joy, in this case. As we move into the Romantic era, composers continue preferring the scherzo style and tempo for these middle movements of their four-movement compositions, sometimes putting them into the traditional third-movement slot, sometimes putting them in the second-movement slot. There was also composers who wrote standalone compositions called a scherzo. One such composer was Frédéric Chopin. He wrote four such piano compositions. They are all in a quick triple meter, and the most famous of these would be the second of the four. Though it is lively, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, it's extremely serious sounding for the most part, so the literal Italian translation of joke doesn't transfer over into this solo piano piece. Here is pianist Yevgeny Kissin from his album, The Chopin Collection.
That was The Second Scherzo by Frédéric Chopin, performed by pianist Yevgeny Kissin. It was a standalone composition that was lively and in a triple meter, but unlike its name, it wasn't much of a joke. We are exploring compositions meant to depict laughter or based on a humorous idea, and the very word scherzo means joke, but by this point in music history, it simply meant a rapid and lively, and often triple meter, composition. Speaking of compositions from the Romantic era, we have already heard Adele's laughing song from Johann Strauss Jr.'s opera, Die Fledermaus. But as we move into the 20th century, there is another great aria of sorts that imitates and depicts laughter. This is the song Glitter and Be Gay from Leonard Bernstein's operetta Candide. This aria about a girl laughing off her troubles is one of the most difficult coloratura soprano arias in the literature. Here is soprano Dawn Upshaw from her album I Wish It So. Ha 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 ha! 
ruby rings. Oh, how can worldly things take the place of honor lost? Can they compensate for my fallen state, purchased as they were at such an awful cost? Bracelets, lavaliers, can they dry my tears? Can they blind my eyes to shame? Can the brightest brooch shield me from reproach? Can the purest diamond purify my name? And yet, of course, these trinkets are endearing. Uh -huh. I'm also glad my sapphire is a star. Uh -huh. I'd rather like a 20 carat earring. Uh -huh. If I'm not pure, at least my jewels are. Enough, enough. I'll take their diamond and show my noble stuff by being killed in a kiss. What a great example of a composer setting laughter to music in that aria, Glitter and Be Gay, from Candide by Leonard Bernstein. We heard Don Upshaw, soprano. Next, let's have our Classroom Corner segment, where we explore different methods and curricula for introducing young people to music. Gilbert Hyatt's 1950 book called The Art of Teaching states that humor links the pupils and teacher through enjoyment. It can mold a collection of individuals into a group. Research conducted in 1987 by Richard Weaver and Howard Cottrell studied what factors had the greatest influence on learning. Students ranked sense of humor and ability to laugh as the third highest motivating factor in the classroom. And the music classroom is not exempt from this principle. Music educator Sarah Given teaches middle school and high school orchestra and serves as one of the conductors for the Columbus Symphony Youth Orchestra program. And she says this, Research supports the use of humor in the classroom, citing that teachers who employ humor facilitate the retention of information, increase speed of learning, improve problem solving, relieve stress, reduce test anxiety, and increase student perception of teacher credibility. Hyatt felt that the real purpose of humor in the classroom was using enjoyment to link teacher and student, which is the essence of teaching anyway. Other studies found that humor helps reduce classroom tension 
helps students handle failures in an appropriate way, makes concepts more memorable, and helps develop a sense of community. Given says that these jokes and inside jokes between teacher and classroom can help bond teachers and students, and she says it can buy you a lot more focus from the students. This has been Classroom Corner. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today's episode is titled Music for Laughter, and in it we have explored compositions intended to depict laughter or an element of humor. We have seen a few vocal compositions where the voices and even the instruments were meant to depict laughter. We also saw an element of humor in a Haydn symphony, and we discussed the Italian word for joke, that is, scherzo, and some examples that were arguably no joke. Remember, you can follow this show on Twitter or Facebook at Music for Life PCG. Finally, for our dessert today, where we hear some lighter fare to end the program, let's have some musical comedy, classical music parody, in fact. Music comedian and historian Peter Shickley, well, he calls himself a musicalologist, has written a number of parody pieces under the pseudonym PDQ Bach, saying he's the undiscovered, heretofore unknown son of J.S. Bach. If you recall from all our discussions of J.S. Bach, he wrote several pieces in a volume called The Well-Tempered Clavier, preludes and fugues in every major and minor key, a prelude being an improvisatory-sounding work and a fugue being a complex round of sorts. Well-tempered referred to the even tuning of the keyboard instruments of his day and their ability to play in every major and minor key and still sound pleasant. Well, this undiscovered Bach apparently has written a set of pieces he's called the Short-Tempered Clavier, subtitled Preludes and Fugues in All the Major and Minor Keys Except for the Really Hard Ones. And just as Bach's works have a BWV number, a catalog number, Peter Shickley gives PDQ Bach's works an S number, S for Shickley, and in this case the S number is printed, quote, easy as 3.14159265, unquote. So it's S number easy as pie. Here's the D minor prelude and fugue by PDQ Bach, really by Peter Shickley. After the boogie-woogie ending of the prelude, I think you'll hear a pretty recognizable tune for the fugue's subject. The pianist here is Christopher O'Reilly.
You have been listening to Music for Life, a production of KPCG 101.3 on the FM dial in Edmond, Oklahoma. From the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus, I'm Ryan Malone. Thanks for joining me. Thank you.